We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular ICRT commentators, Ross Feingold. Good evening. And Brian Hugh. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing the US Senate, including Taiwan provisions in its latest defence spending bill, plans for an independence referendum, anti-Semitic comments that have been spewed over social media, a protest to save two-stroke vehicles, and the popularity of Singapore here in Taiwan. And we'll begin with National Security Council Secretary-General David Lee telling the Financial Times this week that the government has planned possible measures to counter Beijing's pressuring of international airlines to designate Taiwan as being part of China on their websites. And I spoke with the writer of said article, Edward White, about Lee's comments and ways in which the Tsai administration could handle the rather contentious issue. Good evening, Edward. Good evening, Gavin. So your piece in the Financial Times, of course, you spoke with National Security Council Secretary-General David Lee, who said that the government is seeking to urge the public to boycott airlines that have altered Taiwan's designation on their websites. I think I'll just be quite clear on um, Secretary-General Lee's comments. He, he said that they were hoping, you know, they were looking to encourage citizens by making it clear to Taiwanese people which airlines had actually caved in to China and had started listing Taiwan as a province of the People's Republic of China. And that's obviously a fairly modest measure. It's not the case that they're calling for, um, you know, calling for citizens to go out and absolutely um, boycott or protest or anything like that. It's just a measure to say, hey, these are the airlines that have caved into China and we're, you know, we're giving you the option to know who those companies are so that you can make a decision yourself. And I think it's very much in line with the broader kind of democratic um, position that Taiwan takes. But I think that the important thing here is that this is a, this does mark something of a significant step for the Tsai administration. You know, they've been copping it pretty heavily in terms of Chinese pressure for the last two years, um, not just on this airline's issue, but on a you know, range of military and diplomatic and coercion from China. So what this means is that they're just taking a slightly firmer stance, and they're, they're obviously also having the sort of um, the confidence to do this with, China, with the backing from the U.S. The US Washington and the White House, and in particular very senior staff in the White House, have been quite outspoken about this issue, you know, labelling it all really and nonsense um, in terms of China's position by you know, China's moves to try and get airlines to label Taiwan as part of China. So I think there's a, a new level of confidence, and whether or not it will actually work in terms of whether or not you're going to see airlines, you know, under pressure and Taiwanese people actively um, flying with other airlines. I mean, that will be something we'll have to wait and see. But it's more of just a signal from the government that they're willing to take a slightly firmer stance on China's, uh, China's measures. But do you think this firmer stance, as you, as you called it, is going mm. to overcome the airline's business protocols? Because, of course, all this is about business. Yeah, no, I don't think there's any move in, in the Taiwan government. Um, there's there's no, absolutely no plan to stop um, businesses, or in this case airlines, from flying into Taiwan or you know, growing their businesses here. It's not, it's not about that. It's just about the Taiwanese sort of making a, a, a firmer stance, a signal to, to China and to the U.S. and to other like-minded countries 
that, hey, we're, we're not going to just take this anymore. We are going to draw a line in the sand. And I guess the, the broader context is that up until now, you haven't really seen much of a pushback. The government has said that obviously they're disappointed when airlines um, start naming um, Taiwan as part of China, but they haven't really done it, taken any measures to express their concern around that. So this is just just a, yeah, drawing a line and saying we're not going to just take this anymore and we are going to at least let our citizens know that these are the airlines that have sort of caved in to China. And there's also talk of international litigation over the matter. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, as, as, as I wrote in my article, the officials have been looking at a range of countermeasures and one of those could be an arbitration or a litigation case against um, the airlines. Now, I think as um, Mr. Lee said to me, that this would be a very long-running process. These cases are, you know, even if they're a relatively simple matter, just to get two countries or two companies from different countries to the table to talk can take a number of years. And I think it's very early stages as to which um, body internationally or um, exactly what mechanisms would be used to pursue a case. But again, I think this is just a signal that they um, are willing to sort of back up their citizens because obviously there are people in Taiwan that have a real problem with these airlines labelling Taiwan in this way. So it's just another another measure that the government can do. But I would say these are all fairly fairly modest. It's not a major protest or a major action against the airlines. Do you think the government could take further action in the future? I, I would be surprised to see under this administration at this at this stage. Um, I would be surprised to see any really rash decisions or really um, any any measures that would seem to be making Taiwan kind of be on an equal playing uh, equal level with China. Obviously, China is the instigator in this situation. So, any countermeasures that Taiwan takes should be seen in that context that they're responding to China. They're not actively going out and being the troublemaker here. So. I would say that Taiwan's response to date has been, well, these, these latest moves are, are, are pretty modest, and I'd be surprised to see any major ramp-up in that kind of response in the near future because Tsai and her administration obviously has this very thin line on which to walk and which they have to show some sort of protest because their citizens um, clearly, well, you know, a lot of people in Taiwan would really like to see them push back harder. But at the same time, they are committed to a policy of peaceful relations with China and they don't want to be seen as a party or they don't want to be seen as someone who is actively ratcheting up the tension. Um, and they would like accurately to see the, the view expressed internationally that it is actually China who is the one <laughs> that is um, causing these issues in the first place rather than anything that Tsai or her administration is doing. And that was me in conversation with Edward White of the Financial Times. So, Ross, I mean... Ed's comments. Well, the challenge here is whether or not the government can actually do something that's effective as far as litigation or regulatory action against the airlines. Hard to see what they could do. I think a more realistic approach would be to let the public know about the issues and, let, as the government also said, let consumers decide uh, whether or not they want to utilize the goods or services of the companies that have caved into China's pressure. But for the government to initiate any kind of legal or regulatory punishment against multinational companies for doing this, I think that's a, a very risky road to go down.
And of course, there's obviously Edward mentioned and broached the fact that there's, there's a question of where this would take place, the World Trade Organization or the countries themselves. But you can't take action against companies at the World Trade Organization. So how could you take action against the government of Singapore, for example, um, because of a business decision made by Singapore Airlines? And yeah, I get it. Singapore government does, uh, through a series of holdings, have ultimate control over the um, business decisions of Singapore Airlines. And there are other airlines around the world involved in this situation who, who analogous, uh, they are controlled by their national governments. There are also airlines in this situation who are not controlled by governments. So if you were to take action against only those airlines whose governments have a controlling stake, but not the ones that are fully privatized, have no government control, that kind of makes no sense because it's it, it's not a balanced approach. Uh, but again, the, the likelihood that there's any basis for a WTO action against governments that have a controlling stake in airlines is very remote. And I think Taiwan, frankly, doesn't sound nice, but has the risk of becoming a laughing stock by initiating such an action. So I would strongly encourage the government to think of other approaches besides uh, a legal or regulatory uh, approach. Um, yeah, I think that the government does have its hands tied in many ways. It's very hard to really take action against this. Uh, you could take some kind of legal, legal measure against airlines in some form, but then you do run the risk, as Ed mentioned, of coming off as authoritarian or punishing airlines for not following your will, basically just doing what China has attempted to do. Um, on the other hand, attempting a consumer boycott, that it's, it's a question whether Taiwanese people will do that. Um, you have, for example, something like China's boycott of South Korean businesses because of THAAD, uh, which was self-organized, although the government tried to encourage that, uh, doesn't necessarily re register as all that positive for Taiwan either if the government is seen as stirring uh, members of the public to boycott. I mean, this kind of thing probably will happen organically in some form. But we um, know that, uh, at least in recent times, uh, even no government mm -hmm. involvement, the word you just mentioned, organically, it, mm. it almost never happens here in Taiwan, whether it's, it's a product from China or other parts of the world, or even a Taiwanese company. I mean, we've seen mm. lots of examples where Taiwanese companies have done uh, something that uh, is, mm. is pretty inappropriate, uh, whether it's putting poison food products into the marketplace <laughs> or otherwise uh, doing something that you know, most people feel was inappropriate mm. corporate behavior. Uh, we have entertainers, innumerable entertainers, who go to China make a lot of money. They go on Chinese TV. They sing the praises of Chinese government. Sometimes they even say, I'm, I'm for unification. They don't just say, I'm anti-independence. They go further and say, I'm, I'm for unification. And we never see a organic boycott. Yes, there, there are a small number of people who, who will write on, on the internet, uh, go on TV and say there should be a boycott. But uh, very rare or almost never do we see an organic, again to use Brian's word, uh, consumer boycott against companies that have done something to offend the public here in Taiwan. It just mm. doesn't happen. It occurs at such a small scale that just not significant. Usually what you do see much more at a more registrable scale is, is a petition of some form. But of course, that does not have a lot of effect. Um, so again, I think just maybe a lot of it turns to that Taiwanese are just so used to this kind of thing that you have people that uh, or companies or whatever that do things which are perceived as encroaching on Taiwan's sovereignty, yet there's no ability to take action against them. And so I think it leads to a dilemma. 
There's also the risk of retaliatory action. So any type of government action against the, mm. the, the companies involved. And a lot of the focus has been on airlines, but let's not forget, it's not just airlines. There's mm. other multinational companies who've been in the same situation. They've changed the descriptions on their websites or other corporate information mm. with regard to Taiwan. There's been clothing companies, hotel companies. Uh, I'm sure if we have this conversation in a few months, the list of industries where companies have changed descriptions of Taiwan will be much longer. Uh, but there, there's the risk of retaliatory action against Taiwan companies mm. by consumers or governments in those countries if Taiwan were to take mm. this kind of action. So again, I, I think mm -hmm. this is a That's pretty right. risky approach, uh, would not encourage it, uh, would encourage providing the public with information. But ultimately, is, is the public in Taiwan going to stand primarily on the side of what's right, or are they going to stand on the side of price, convenience, good mm -hmm. service? Exactly, and that's, that's a dilemma for Taiwan going way back. Um, I'd also I mean, the way to make companies listen is to hurt their wallets. To that's where it really hurts for them. They might change, but will that happen? I think that's again just returns to much of these bigger uh, economic questions regarding Taiwan and its position in the world regarding China. I mean, this obviously this big big story over the past three weeks. This airline thing has been over past months. In fact, I mean, do you think eventually it will just go away? If there's going to be no action taken, if the government say litigation is too costly, could take too long, the government can't call for a boycott, it's uh, just going to be go under the well, carpet. It, it yeah. won't go away at one level because, uh, as I mentioned, China will continue to look at companies across various industries and continue to identify companies that have drop-down fields on their websites where the user of the website has to pick where they are. And uh, in the past... Uh, you could have just taken off the word country or used the word territory. That's not the issue anymore. The issue is what is following or before the word Taiwan, whereas now China is not going to accept simply the word Taiwan. They want to see Taiwan, comma, something. So Taiwan, comma, province of China, Taiwan, comma, China, province of China, comma, Taiwan, whatever it is. So the the field of targets for China is enormous. In fact, it's almost limitless. So this will continue to come up uh, as China identifies additional industries and companies uh, that um, have not changed the description to have the comma part. Uh, so this issue won't go away. And again, it's, it's just up to the consumers here. So are the consumers going to forget about it for airlines? Probably. Are consumers going to continue to fly the airlines that have changed the designation? Um, most likely, the answer is yes, and we know that from past experience. Uh, so mm. yeah, it's I think, just uh, uh, up to the government maybe to publicize it, but but ultimately uh, it won't go away, Gavin, but uh, it, it, the consumers are probably going to just play so I think, along. I think, uh, yeah, the field will continue to expand. China doesn't have any incentive to stop. Uh, actually, I'm somewhat surprised that they didn't do this sooner. Airlines is a very smart way because, uh, for example, someone that uh, not Taiwanese buying a ticket to Taiwan sees that it says Taiwan part of China. That frames Taiwan and their experience after as Taiwan being part of China. I think that's very interesting. And targeting the travel industry is very smart for China in that way. And yet, I think the hands of the government are very much tied. Uh, I think there's no way to to take action against the, these companies in a way that is, is not undemocratic. Or uh, how do you affect, you know, how to make it hurt for that, those companies where it really does, which is through their wallets, then that, again, just depends on the motivation of the Taiwanese public. Or do you think that more educated travelers just might snigger? What do you mean? As, as, as in shake their head and go, Taiwan's not part of China. Um, well, but, but again, if you're talking about local consumers or if the government is saying... Foreign, foreign users of the website who are traveling to Taiwan. I, I wonder, because I think... I, I, I think it's think, irrelevant to them. Yeah, I think a lot of people just select... Yeah, I think people just select the thing and just go in. I, know, I even know uh, PhD candidates from elite universities in the US who have come to Taiwan and 
thought it was uh, legally part of China. They got through immigration, you know, Republic of China, whatever. I think it's like Hong Kong, and I'm kind of shocked sometimes. <laughs> People that study the Asia field, let's say, even. <laughs> right, moving on, and in Taiwan, U.S. news this week, the U.S. Senate passed an annual defense policy bill for fiscal year 2019, which included recommendations that troops from Taiwan and the U.S. participate in each other's military exercises and for exchanges between Taiwanese and U.S. generals. Now, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a similar bill in late May. However, the Senate bill has hit a snag and it's run into some friendly fire between the White House and Congress over the Chinese telecom giant Z Now, the Senate version reverses President Donald Trump's earlier lifting of a ban on the sale of U.S. equipment to ZTE, as he sought then to end the sanctions to help him win trade concessions from China. However, Trump's Republican allies argue some of ZTE products could still be used to spy on the U.S., and Senate leaders opted to include a bipartisan provision to reimpose sanctions that will now have to be negotiated with the original House bill, which includes the Taiwan provisions. So, Ross, this is a bit of a thorny issue. Taiwan is now not a place it wanted to be, um, and it was talked about being, with Trump came into power, stuck in the middle. Well, these provisions encouraging closer security cooperation have been passed in some form or another by Congress going back many years. Sometimes it's just in the form of a resolution. Sometimes it's incorporated into legislation, which is the case here. Very often the wording is more nebulous than it actually might seem in a a news article or in a talk show discussion because it's often usually just calls on on the government, calls on the, the president, the White House, the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, et cetera, et cetera, to do something. Uh, it's very difficult to require the for Congress to require the federal government to do something with regard to uh, foreign relations or defense, which is what this ultimately comes comes down to. So whatever language for regard to Taiwan, closer military cooperation, uh, providing reports about Taiwan's military defense needs, uh, encouraging closer uh, cooperation, participation in military exercises by Taiwan forces, etc., is unlikely to be actioned on by the government in the way that Congress might have preferred. We've seen this before. It'll happen again. Uh, It gets a lot of news attention here in Taiwan, uh, as if it signifies a a substantive change in relations between the U.S. and Taiwan. The answer is generally no. Uh, the, The trajectory will continue uh, towards closer relations, regardless of this language. But of course, the ZTE issue, Brian, is the mm. fact that it could slow or stall this mm. bill going through, because of course the White House is trying to kill the provision mm. which slams ZTE, mm. which of course could affect mm. the provisions in support of weapons sales to Taiwan, the more timely review of weapons sales and arms sales requests, and the possibility of joint military exercises and further exchanges between officers and defense officials. I think right now the issue is it's extremely difficult to tell what's going on in terms of America, in terms of uh, contradictory American actions or reversals, or cases in which the right hand doesn't seem to know what the left hand is doing and vice versa. So with ZTE, particularly uh, as a result of uh, announcements by Donald Trump, then that is perceived suddenly as America suddenly turning away from policies of hostility towards China when there have been previous periods of either hostility and then rapprochement and then back to hostility and so forth. Yet at the same time, then you have these kind of military bills uh, which step up support for Taiwan that continue. I think in the short term, we've seen 
what's going on in terms of, let's say, the State Department or the military seems to be fairly, in the, in the short term, seems to be fairly consistent in terms of stepping up support for Taiwan. But will that suddenly be undercut by executive power from the president? Um, that, that is a question. Uh, I think uh, there have been even reports that after the Taiwan Travel Act was passed, that after Alex Wong, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, came to Taiwan, that Donald Trump himself was displeased with this. And so that is kind of odd right after that seems to signal American support of Taiwan. And so it's a question. I think a lot of it is actually just uh, while these deals may occur, a lot is very subordinate to the contingencies of what occurs on international politics regarding possible blowups between America and China or uh, you know, other factors such as North Korea or Japan's actions and so forth. And so it, I think it's really difficult to tell at this point. And of course, Ross, Taiwan is sort of hoping, um, hoping, 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 many times hoping to be invited to RIMPAC this year after, of course, the US disinvited China. Well, this, this legislation would be irrelevant to whether or not Taiwan gets invited. So this, this legislation will be passed. The Taiwan language will be included. It's got to be passed because it's it funds the, the operations of the Department of Defense and related agencies. So uh, it was kind of a, a brilliant legislative move by the senators to insert the ZTE language into this Defense Authorization Act because – Again, we have to fund the Defense Department, so the the the, bill, the broader bill will be passed. It will include the Taiwan language, whether or not the ZTE language is in there or it gets removed at the last minute or removed in the House-Senate conference remains to be seen. Uh, but again, it's, it's irrelevant to whether or not Taiwan gets invited to RIMPAC. That's a political decision uh, to be made in the White House and at the Pentagon. And Congress cannot require the Defense Department or the White House to invite Taiwan to include to to participate in RIMPAC. What about the request in the provisions to say Taiwan and U.S. troops should take part in each other's exercises? I mean, again, it's it's an aspiration of Congress, but Congress cannot require the Pentagon or the White House to do that. And the Congress has made calls like this for many years, and it, it's never happened at at the sort of public's large scale that. Uh, might be envisioned by Congress. Uh, of course, Taiwan uh, military officers do train under various formats in the United States on various weapon systems, whether whether it's ground or air. Uh, and U.S. personnel do come to Taiwan periodically to interact and train Taiwan personnel. There, there is no secret to this. Uh, but whether or not Taiwan could uh, participate in the same public and scale methods that other participants in RIMPAC do, uh, hard to see it happening because we know ultimately it will inflame China and uh, there'd be repercussions both for Taiwan and the United States. It's not clear at this stage why the United States and Taiwan would want to deal with the repercussions from that happening. Mm. I think it's also a question, particularly if America is seen as stepping up support for Taiwan, what about America's other military presence in the region? For example, regarding South Korea or Japan, the notion, particularly after the Trump-Kim meeting, that America will scale back and withdraw troops. I mean, then stepping up for support from Taiwan, military or otherwise, just that seems to go against the prevailing trend. And so, so, sounds like Brian's saying the only solution here is to invite both Taiwan and North Korea to RIMPAC. <laughs> oh, that'd be, that'd be quite interesting. That'd make uh, for pretty amazing news. <laughs> but, you know, actually, maybe, maybe, you know, Trump seems like Kim Jong-un quite much. And we'll just keep trying that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. North Korea's buddy. Anyway, we shall move on again now. And the Formosa Alliance held its first meeting in Taichung this past weekend. And its members there called for a referendum on a formal declaration of independence for Taiwan to be held next year. Now, Alliance founder and Formosa television chairman Guo Hong says the group will work to push lawmakers to amend the Referendum Act before August the 31st of this year and then hold the referendum in April of next year. Of course, under existing laws, such referendums which regard 
constitutional issues and reform are banned. Now, former President Chen Shui-bian appeared in a recorded video cast at the meeting and he voiced his support for the independence referendum and he's been quoted as saying that, well... Singapore is an example of why Taiwan needs a referendum because, in his words, it's smaller than Taiwan but still a sovereign country and a member of the United Nations. So, Brian, I mean, an independence referendum, you can't mm. do it under current referendum law. Do you see lawmakers changing the law again? To I think this? probably not. And I think that the Thai Ministry really does not want to rock the boat where that is concerned. I think that, that is very clear at this point. Um, at the same time, I think the referendum... Sometimes one has to sort of read between the words. I'm not totally sure it's actually aimed at realizing a referendum. It's more to sort of steal the political capital of the DPP by claiming these traditional positions that the DPP has clung to, and that way winning the support of the Deep Greens, uh, particularly because a lot of elders of the Taiwanese independence movement, like Peng Mingming or Chen Shui-bian, who's perceived as pushing Taiwan in direction of independence when he was president, are on board with this. And they have joined together with younger third force parties uh, that emerge after the Sunflower Movement. So this could be a way to sort of try to steal the DPP's thunder. At the same time, I'm not sure if it realistically you know, really will happen or if it realistically does even aim for referendum. But Brian, why, why doesn't uh, President Tsai, who's also the DPP chairwoman mm-hmm. and pretty much controls the decisions of the DPP Legislative Caucus, right? They're mm-hmm. not going to vote mm-hmm. as a block against the president and party chairwoman's wishes. Mm. Why doesn't she just come out now and say, this will never get passed by our legislative caucus Mm -hmm. during the current legislative UN, uh, where we have a a large majority. So you guys, you Formosa Alliance people, we love you. (laughs) You can talk about it all you want. I'm just telling you, this is not going to come to the floor and we're not going to vote it. Vote, vote, vote for it. I'm just not going to let it happen. So go have fun talking about it. I love you, but it's not going to happen. Wouldn't Mm. that just uh, help frame the conversation and, and frankly, save a lot of time? Mm. I think, uh, yeah, Tsai actually does have her hands somewhat tied by this because this is actually, I think, a useful move for more deep green political forces. If she does actually come out and say that, then she will be accused again of sort of betraying the historical mission of the DPP, uh, such as, you know, with the past in which there have been proposals to remove the Taiwanese independence clause from the DPP. That provokes some anger, particularly among party traditionalists. Okay, but what's the point of her? Because you know it's probably going to happen, at least based on past experience, whether it's Mm. President President, uh, Tsai or uh, Premier Lai mm-hmm. or other uh, uh, the legislative caucus leader, um, mm. Ke Jianming, uh, or legislative speakers, Su Jiaqiu. You know, they're going to say something like, oh, well, you know, in a democracy, you know, we support peoples. Well, we'll see. <laughs> and, you know, they'll, they'll come out with some nebulous statements that just encourages what, what appears to be a pretty wasteful conversation if it's never going to happen. I think also one has to remember that there are actually some DP politicians that are part of this. So there is a kind of section of her own party, which maybe she cannot control. Which is party, exactly no, she, she can't control to... them. That's why I'm saying she should come out and say, like, I am not going to let this come to the floor of the legislative mm. UN for a vote. I think that's also her style. Just, you know, very much trying to negotiate. What, not to make a the... decision? Yes. And also not trying to negotiate with every party and then eventually making them happy and sometimes not nipping possible threats to her in the bud. Uh, you know, particularly with regards to the third force. Okay, but this is a binary <laughs> choice. Either you let the the... the proposed revisions to the referendum law come to come up for a vote or oh. you don't yeah and i think uh i think ty will just kind of waffle on the issue again and that ultimately will not work on out well for her because of course it, it's a tricky situation of course there's an election in november mm-hmm. which means obviously tying win wants full dpp support yeah. mm-hmm. This could split the DPP support, and God forbid should we get another political party form itself, which is going to be exactly the same as all the other political parties of the green side that form mm. themselves when they get angry with each other. And, of course, it sets up a precedent, of course, for the opposition to call for a referendum on unification. 
Well, highly unlikely. I mean, the Gomindong brand is so damaged right now. A, a referendum about unification would, would, would help them uh, re regain power at the central government level. Might might not even work at the local government level either. I mean, Maybe may uh, you know, the China unification uh, parties, like like you know, the famous White Wolf, Zhang Anlam, maybe his party would call for the referendum. Obviously, there's no public support for having such a referendum, Gavin, but it was very funny of you to say. And, I, think, uh, I think everybody is basically, every issue has embraced a referendum now, and that's a way to, you know, get their calls in. But, but that goes back <laughs> to my earlier point, Brian, that uh, there's a number of referendums percolating. Um, you know, some mm. have to do with social issues. There, there's the people who are opposed to marriage equality who, who want a referendum. Mm. And the DPP, and specifically the party leadership, and even more specifically the party chair, chairwoman, President Tsai, have not taken public positions on these referendums. Mm -hmm. And after the relaxation of, of the stringent requirements, so it's now easier to get a referendum on the ballot, some of these might make the ballots mm -hmm. in, in the yeah. upcoming elections. And, and then the government will have to make a decision. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're gonna have to take a position on, on some of these referendums. Yeah. I think if or you, or yeah. even just come out and say like, we have no position and the public could vote its conscience and we'll, we'll just implement whatever the, the referendum result is and respect it. Uh, but, but there's gotta be a position. So on all these various referendums that, that are um, moving through the process, uh, Brian, tell me if I'm wrong, but as far as I know, the, the party, the DPP, has not taken a position on, on most or any yeah, of them. Yeah, I think that's about right. I think the DPP really does not want to come off with anti-referendum, basically, because this has such been such a historical demand from elements of the pan-green camp that if you do that, then, again, you split your own camp. That might not work out well for the DPP. You but if they wanted this referendum, well, they wanted the relaxation, then people are bringing referendums for whatever the issue, and some are very valid. I'm not, I'm not um, disputing the, the, the importance of some of the issues concerned. Some of them are probably kind of odd, uh, uh, but, but if, if anything gets through the hurdles and actually is on the ballot, then it's probably a valid referendum, a valid issue, worth public discussion and even a public vote. The government has to take a position. They got to show some leadership. I think, I think that's the issue with the government, but we'll just have to see. But I don't think we'll be holding our breath for that, actually, Ross, because we'll have turned blue and probably died by the time that happens. Gavin, you're going to be turning blue as in Guomita kind of blue? <laughs> no, just in... Oh, well, you know, you either turn blue or green. Well, I guess... Or red. Uh, Anyway, it's going a completely different direction now, and the daughter of late lawmaker and well-known contrarian Li Ao has sparked some anger among Taiwan's Jewish community. Now, Hedy Li has taken umbrage against what she claims are Israeli companies operating in Taiwan, scamming customers into buying beauty products at department stores. Now, she's made numerous comments on social media about a lack of ingredients listed on the labels of said products, and she's also alleged that the Israeli companies involved could be, well, they could be up to money laundering activities. Now, while if this is true, she has a point in calling for authorities to investigate the matter in order to protect consumers. However, Lee has taken her irie one step a bit too far and is now demanding that the island's Jewish community deal with the problem. She's also made numerous comments on both mainstream and social media, which have read all Jews have a head for business, why do Jews need to scam people, Jewish sales tactics could bring the dead back to life and, more worryingly, simply resorting to, well, blatant anti-Semitism by using the words Jewish scum on her Weibo account. So, Brian, you've written about this topic. Mm. Um, yeah, I think Hedy Lee is really trying to inherit her father's role as a provocative contrarian, and unfortunately that does lead to a lot of racial bigotry. Um, her comments are on social media, and I'm somewhat disappointed in Taiwanese media just for picking this up and giving us traction when this is just... 
a, a social media post which contained a large number of links to anything from WikiLeaks cables to random YouTube videos and asserting this very monolithic Jew, uh, uh, view of uh, Jews and seeing them as all corrupt and out to, to, I think the phrase was to play on the hearts of Taiwanese women in Taiwan or just scamming people around the world and making this kind of connection between, this racial kind of connection between all Jews everywhere. And that is just nonsense, yet somehow this got traction and people are talking about this. But I think it returns a lot of racial views in Thai society sometimes being quite uh, stereotyped or outright discriminatory, unfortunately. And of course, she's in the past, she's talked about foreigners in Taiwan mm -hmm. as well. That's right, which is somewhat ironic because uh, she does appear to have been born in the U.S. Uh, her own Facebook profile says that English is her mother language. And so it seems very strange for her to lash out at foreigners when she is... Uh, well, she views herself as Chinese-American in line with her father's views, but she was born in America. However, I think uh, perhaps maybe similar to her father, she has these overarching racial views regarding ethnic Chinese. And so even being born in America, she views herself as Chinese, probably. And it's, I, think it's, I think it's quite contradictory. It's hypocritical. Ryan Ross, of course, you're the chairman of the Taipei Jewish Center. Well, uh, th this is very upsetting when, when these incidents occur in Taiwan, and unfortunately they happen with a uh, scary amount of frequency where people repeat stereotypes, whether it's in the media, it's in advertising, political discussion. People use stereotypes about the Jewish people, that they're good at business or they're even uh, somehow devious and nefarious in their, in their business methods. Uh, and, and as Brian wrote in his, his very excellent article in, in New Bloom, uh, the, this also goes to the broader issue of how people in Taiwan view, interact with the minorities in, in their midst. And uh, th there still seems to be a need for education about minorities, whether it's religious minorities or racial minorities, uh, sexual minorities. Uh, we see that there, there's just a lack of experience and it sometimes manifests itself in statements that are not in, well, uh, not intention to be uh, discriminatory or reflect ill will. However, it reflects ignorance, and it's very hurtful. Yeah, that, that's ultimately the key thing here. Uh, as for Dr. Lee, uh, she may have identified uh, people engaged in wrongdoing. We don't know. Um, and as you said, Gavin, it's up for the authorities to investigate whether the activities of these companies have violated any Taiwan laws or regulations. However, the activities of a few individuals should not in any way uh, be connected to the community uh, of Jewish people in Taiwan. So the fact that some of these uh, skincare product sellers might be from Israel and they might be Jewish since the majority of people from Israel are Jewish, not 100%, but the majority, uh, has absolutely nothing to do with Taiwan's Jewish community. If a Catholic person from a, a, from a European country was accused of wrongdoing in Taiwan, it's not like that would be the responsibility of the archdiocese of Taiwan. Uh, or if a Taiwanese Buddhist person commits a crime, it's not the responsibility of Taiwan's Buddhist religious organization. So uh, it, it's absolutely shocking that somebody would uh, say a Jewish person may have committed a crime in Taiwan, thus the Jewish community of Taiwan somehow has some responsibility to address that. And in fact, throughout history, this has been one of the methods that anti-Semites and people with ill will towards the Jewish people have used to make 
a crime uh, out of uh, just being Jewish. So they, they identify a Jewish person has done something wrong. Thus, all Jews must be bad. They must all be engaged in wrongdoing. And, and they're all responsible, and they have to pay the price. This is basically what, what has happened throughout history and has resulted in um, not just what are called pogroms, which were mass riots against Jewish people um, in Eastern Europe over the centuries, but obviously the Holocaust dur during World War II as well. So uh, I would encourage the audience to read the social media postings, read Brian's article uh, to get some excellent analysis. Our Taipei Jewish Center issued a statement in Chinese and English explaining why this is a concern when somebody uh, moves from criticism of individual behavior to linking it to their religion or the, the broader Jewish community. And, and for people in Taiwan to uh, be a little more uh, cautious and a little more concerned with the, the feelings of the minorities who do live here in Taiwan. Right, we'll stay with minorities now, but in a slightly different vein. Now, owners of two-stroke scooters rallied on Sunday here in Taipei over government plans to ban the vehicles on certain roads. Now, the protests, which some folks might see as a protest by people protesting their right to pollute, comes as lawmakers are gearing up to pass an amendment to the Air Pollution Control Act to ban two-stroke scooters. Under the amendment, local governments will designate air quality protection areas and ban two stroke scooters from entering such areas. It sounds reasonable. However, a spokesperson for an alliance against the ban on two-stroke vehicles has said that the government should target factories instead as scooters. Well, apparently, according to this spokesperson, they conform with regulations and have passed factory inspections. Now, to be contrary to that, numerous studies in various countries on this planet have shown that two-stroke engines are far less efficient at burning the fuel they use and exhaust systems are also less effective at removing pollutants. All of course means exhaust fumes from said two-stroke scooters contain higher levels of the chemicals found in the fuel and oil that they use. So Ross, will you be rushing out to buy a two-stroke scooter? Oh, I love the smell of pollution in the morning, to paraphrase a famous movie line. Uh, but yeah, this is uh, unfortunately not a solution that will make the scooter or the motorcycle, motorcycle owners happy. However, they are a minority and a small minority, as you said, and these machines do pollute. Uh, so they're probably going to lose this debate. They're, they're not going to get much sympathy from the broader public, it, it seems that there'll be some kind of halfway point where these vehicles will be allowed in certain places, but not others. So they could pollute in certain parts of Taiwan, but maybe not everywhere. Uh, but uh, the long-term trend is obviously uh, not just here in Taiwan, but in other countries as well, uh, against allowing um, polluting vehicles, whether it's cars or scooters, motorcycles, to continue to operate unless they go through some uh, expensive changes to to the equipment um, on, on the vehicle or the motorcycle. Uh, so that, that option does exist. It's obviously expensive, and it's not something that the owners want to do. But if they want to continue to use their, their device, they're going to have no choice. Mm. I think uh, the advocates of two-stroke scooters in the past have raised that it would be against democracy to ban two-stroke scooters. And I think that most uh, groups that become affected by bans conducted for the sake of preserving the environment are going to make that claim. Um, 
at the same time, I think it will be difficult for a lot of Taiwanese to give up things that are part of their everyday lives, even for the sake of the environment. For example, one remembers the uh, recent debate on bubble tea and what we do with these plastic straws, which the government poses to ban, and uh, kind of soul-searching about the future of bubble tea. Do we eat it with a spoon or a paper straw or what? Or just, for example, the, the fact that there have been mobilizations regarding the burning of ghost money, um, which is a religious practice, and so that touches on a number of sensitive issues, even if that was fake news. Um, and so there is sensitivity to this issue. It is a minority issue, um, so I don't anticipate it gaining a huge amount of traction. Yet at the same time, uh, it is it is a question how the government moves forward and addresses all these different groups with sensitivity. But of course, Brian, the government is offering money to people to trade in their two-stroke vehicles. Mm, I think that will just be seen as a form of bribery. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, or that's that's what the claim will be. Or uh, I think. Uh, the government was seen as being as seen as being favoring some things and not others. For example, fancy go-go scooters and not two-stroke scooters. Um, there, the problem is, of course, the electric scooters at the moment, like Gogoro, you mentioned, mm, yeah, they're exactly. rather more expensive right. than your average cheap scooter scooter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, well uh, a significant part of this debate is people like their toys, people like their bigger, older <laughs> machines that uh, you can't simply replicate with with a. Uh, electric scooter uh, a, a big old motorcycle with a lot of noise and and uh, the, oh you can't be that noise in alleyways i think it'll be framed as like a even freedom of expression kind of that, that, that's one just, kind of motorcycle not the other so, so e- even if even if the electric vehicles were manufactured in in a design you know, so aesthetically it looks like the older bigger noisier dirtier motorcycles it's still not going to be the same experience it's going to be something that was mass produced at at the factory today as opposed to having the allure of an older uh, larger noisier more polluting motorcycle uh, so if, it's not a question of simply saying go get an electric one um, people want their vintage equipment and that that's understandable but again this ultimately is going to be a minority of people in Taiwan, and they're probably going to lose this debate. So we, we should praise the government for a- actually showing some resolve on this issue. But this is hopefully not where the discussion ends over polluting activities in Taiwan. We don't want this to be a cosmetic thing. Oh, we we banned older two-stroke motorcycles, <laughs> and we're going to let uh, continue to allow a large number of other polluting activities uh, mm. to continue. Lovely diesel trucks, for example. Well, again, the list, the list is long. Uh, yeah, and, I'm actually and, so. I'm surprised though this time that you know, for example, that two-stroke scooter owners organize. I mean, I can't imagine people taking to the the streets for bubble tea straws, plastic straws. Hey, have, um, you, have you ever <laughs> seen like Hell's Angels in the U.S.? Course, oh, man, they're course. very well organized. That's true. Yeah, of course. There's a kind of the culture behind this, which is I think uh, why there's this kind of organization or this reaction. And before we go today, a poll. Yes, another poll. And whether you love them or loathe them, the Taiwanese Public Opinion Foundation, well, it just can't get enough of them. And its latest survey has found that Taiwan's favourite country is Singapore. Now, the poll found that 88.2% of respondents said they have a good impression of the city-state, while a mere 5.4% said they have the opposite view. Now, according to a professor at Shershin University's Graduate Institute for Gender Studies who was quoted by the Taipei Times, Taiwanese people like Singapore because they have projected onto the nation their desire for a cleaner and more orderly society. There we go. Now, the survey also found that 84.6% of respondents like Japan, while 82.3% of respondents like Canada. North Korea was Taiwan's least favourite country, with 70.9% of respondents to the poll saying they didn't like the place. Now, I actually had to do a double take of this poll because it was virtually the same as last year's poll. 
I looked it up as well, Gavin, and yeah, it, it was the numbers were very similar. The the way the country, the, the ranking of the countries. We have to clarify though; it's a very important point that the question asked and the one that got all the headlines, and like a lot of polling in Taiwan, one could say it, it has its faults. But the question asked was. Uh, how do you, you know, do you feel good about this country? Right? Do, you, do you have a halgan? So it wasn't um, g- giving someone a blank piece of paper and saying, uh, pick the country, you know, write down the country you like the best. So uh, people put up a score for all the different countries. It just turned out that uh, when people looked at Singapore, they got the highest number of uh, I like it, uh, and then Japan, Canada, so, somewhat lower. Uh, you know, why, why do people have this view of, of Singapore? As you said, it's, it's clean, it's orderly. I, I was there last week, um, and this was during the, the Trump-Kim summit, and to Singapore's credit, they handled this large event with all the security precautions that, that come along with it in a very efficient manner. And there were very minimal road closures, for example, when the two leaders traveled back and forth from their hotels to the summit meeting site, and they were both in country for approximately 48 hours. So uh, you could imagine that it, it could have caused a lot of traffic chaos, and actually that didn't happen. Uh, hard to imagine other countries, not just Taiwan, but other countries managing something like this so efficiently. Uh, Singapore is a multi-ethnic society, and the uh, different groups seem to get along very well. That's something we, we often lack here. We were talking about lack of knowledge about minorities earlier in the program. So a number of things that Singapore uh, uh, does well that other societies might want to emulate. Obviously, the concerns about human rights and freedom of speech, uh, things that have moved or changed very rapidly here in Taiwan in recent decades where other countries lag behind. And I don't think people in Taiwan would want to give those up. Mm. So, Brian, what was it with Singapore and Taiwanese people? Yeah, I mean, I actually find it a little worrying when uh, Taiwan suddenly praises countries that are really less than democratic, particularly regarding the rule of the Lee family. And then, you know, you have North Korea, which has been ruled by the Kim family, and that's the Lee's favorite. Yeah, and obviously there's a gradation of difference between them, yet I still find that somewhat worrying. Uh, I think it does actually just go back to the Trump-Kim summit, though, that Taiwan is just blindly pursuing after international trends. So Singapore is in, new, is in the news. Everyone loves Singapore suddenly. Um, it's really something we emulate. You know, Singapore is in the news. Uh, the fancy Western world will hold summits there, even if it's with North Korea um, or with, you know, the previous one was the Masi summit, um, things like that. Um, so I think it's just odd. It's just another kind of blindly pursuing after trends. I mean, I even saw articles after the Trump-Kim summit saying that Taiwan should build stronger economic ties with North Korea. Uh, which was incredibly strange to see, particularly because come, Taiwan has come under fire for that. But I think it's just, you know, just sometimes things are in the news, so you think, oh, we should have that too. But I think the majority of people who, who uh, scored Singapore highly in this poll, they, they, their interaction with Singapore is, is mm. probably generally limited to tourism or business mm. interactions. I think so. Uh, they're probably not uh, thinking mm. about uh, freedom of speech <laughs> or libel no, They're probably issues. thinking about the best Hainan chicken rice one can buy. Well, the food in, <laughs> the food in Singapore is excellent. Yeah. That's another reason to like it. I think, uh, but yeah, I mean, it doesn't mean, I mean, certainly this poll doesn't indicate that Singapore has overtaken Japan in terms of its uh, historical relation with Taiwan. Uh, but yeah, I think that there are many things to enjoy about Singapore as a tourist destination. And when people think of countries, usually they think of that. I mean, think about North Korea, no, almost no tur- tourism to North Korea. So maybe that's why it ranks so lowly. <laughs> yeah, Saudi Arabia apparently last year ranked lowly. Mm. So did North Korea, because the bowels were basically the same. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, well, also that we should, we should 
keep in mind that this poll was taken, the results mm. tabulated prior to some of the airline decisions. So you have countries at the top of the, the result for you know, the Haugan, right, <laughs> yeah, was, yeah. was Singapore, Singapore Japan, Japan, and Canada. Canada. Yeah. And these are three countries whose who's, uh, national airlines flag carriers have changed their designation. In fact, multiple airlines in these countries have, although they're connected to the same business organizations, uh, in the case of Singapore, Japan, you have both ANA and mm. uh, Japan Airlines have changed the designation. So one one wonders whether or not the score would be the same. And to link this back to the conversation earlier in this program, if the score were to be the same, if the poll had been taken <laughs> after the airlines made their announcements, that would show you the potential for consumer reaction to the airline's decisions is really low. Mm. Yes. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Have a nice weekend. And Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. Good night. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.